0: The following is a recording from LTCCC's June 22nd webinar about dangerous antipsychotic drugging and the progress that has and hasn't been made in the 10 years since the launch of a federal partnership aimed at reducing antipsychotic drugging in nursing homes. The program features LTCCC's Richard Mollett and Tony Chikatell from the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. For video and slides from the program, visit nursinghome411.org slash webinar ap drugs. Again, that's nursinghome411.org slash webinar ap drugs. Hi, everyone. Uh, This is Richard Mollett with the Long Term Care Community Coalition. I'm really excited about today's program. Uh, A little bit about us before we get started. LTCCC is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. We're entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for residents in nursing homes and assisted living and other adult care facilities. Our primarily fo- primary focus, excuse me, is policy research and analysis and systems advocacy. We also, more and more, do public education, such as programs like this and some of the materials that we will. Reference quickly today, and we are also the proud home of two local long-term care um, programs. Our website is nursinghome411.org. Everything on the site is free to use and share. Uh, Today's program is titled A Campaign Sedated, Dangerous Antipsychotic Drugging Persists in Nursing Homes Despite Federal Initiative to Crack Down on Antipsychotic Drugging. It's been a long haul. This is actually the 10th year of the anti-psychotic drugging campaign, which is why I thought it would be a good time to stop and to do a program on it. I'm really excited to be uh, sharing the presentation today with Tony Chickatel from the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform Canada. Tony is a staff attorney and one of the preeminent advocates on this issue as well as on nursing home issues in general in the country. He's a um, tremendously uh, smart and thoughtful individual and I'm really excited that he's going to be sharing his expertise with us today. So what will we be talking about? First, we're going to talk a bit about the problem, uh, which is the widespread overuse of dangerous and powerful drugs to sedate nursing home residents. Uh, It's, a, as I said before, a nationwide and persistent issue, uh, unfortunately. We're gonna talk a bit about the rules and the federal standards that are in place. One, to protect nursing home residents from inappropriate antipsychotic drugging and psychotropic drugging as well, and also the rules to ensure good dementia care. Uh, We have a lot of materials on our website, as does Tony on his website hr, California Advocates for Nursing Home uh, We have both have uh, materials on our websites on uh, the uh, on good dementia care and on the rules to prevent inappropriate anti-psychotic drugging of residents. Uh, we're going to talk about the principles, uh, particularly regarding that less drugging, is um, tantamount or equals to good dementia care. Uh, We're gonna talk about the national campaign to address this persistent problem. As I said, the campaign celebrated its 10th anniversary just last month. The successes and failures of the campaign, why they matter to residents, families, and um, those who work with them. And where do we go from here? I'm gonna start off the program and then I'm going to hand it over to Tony and then we'll leave some time at the end for QA. Q&A. So the problem, um, antipsychotic drugging, it's not on the tip of everyone's tongue, but actually it impacts right now one in five nursing home residents. One in five residents are given powerful antipsychotic medications. In fact, only 2% of the entire population will ever have a diagnosis for a condition that is recognized by CMS when it risk adjusts for potentially appropriate uses of this medication. I know that's a mouthful. We're gonna kind of parse it out a little bit later on. But essentially, the, um, in the nursing home world, residents are given these drugs or they're not given antipsychotic drugs. And CMS, when they look at the data and when they re- publicly report the data on antipsychotic drug use, they risk adjust, they take out for residents who have certain diagnoses. And those diagnoses are, schizophrenia is the biggest one, Tourette's syndrome and um, Huntington's disease are two less frequent. So what we did is actually, I'm not a clinician, but a couple of years ago when we did our first report on this in 2014, I looked up uh, online and I found that less than 2% of the population will ever be diagnosed with one of these conditions that CMS recognizes as potentially appropriate, yet 20% of nursing home residents are given one of these drugs. Too often, as I note here, these drugs are given to residents to sedate them for the convenience of staff. This is a problem. Why? Because one, these medications are highly potent and they are only indicated to treat specific conditions, again, such as schizophrenia being the most um, prevalent one. They are not clinically indicated to treat dementia or so-called dementia behaviors. We have a Dementia Care Advocacy Toolkit on our website, again, which is nursingon411.org. All that information is free to use and share. We received generous support from the FanFox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation about eight years ago to put that together uh, because these drugs are not clinically indicated to treat dementia or so-called dementia behaviors, which is how most residents wind up getting them inappropriately. Uh, Antipsychotic drugs commonly have serious side effects, including movement disorders, increased risk of falls and hip fractures, fractures, strokes, heart attacks, and death. These drugs stupefy residents and they can actually exacerbate both functional and cognitive limitations. Most importantly, I should say most importantly, but importantly, as I note here in purple and bold, antipsychotic drugs are not effective for more than a short period of time, even in in addressing those so-called behavioral symptoms of dementia. And the general practice is, according to, as far as I know, uh, is that if someone is is having, say, an extreme um, behavioral issue, Uh, say they are are, uh, a potential threat or, or an existing threat to themselves or to other people, it may be appropriate to sedate them for a short period of time, but only for a short period of time. And immediately what a nursing home is required to do under the federal rules is to undertake two things. One is gradual dose reduction, so to reduce any medications that they're given, and then to explore and to implement um, non-pharmacological approaches to, to dementia care. So if someone is having, a say, a violent reaction, is lashing out, is scratching or hitting or crying, uh, and is a danger to themselves or others, there are things that can be done. Uh, One thing that I learned that I think it was from a program that Tony did several years ago, or might have been a program that he sponsored with with another speaker, but essentially is that so-called behaviors uh, for for people with dementia are actually a form of communication. Uh, And quite often what happens, we don't have a lot of time to talk about it in this program today, but what happens is that the resident is uncomfortable or they're frightened or they're bored. Um, or something else is going and they're startled, and they don't have a way to say, oh, you startled me, or hey, I haven't gone to the bathroom in four days and my tummy hurts, uh, or I have a backache. Um, So what they do is they can't express that verbally the way that most of us can, so they are expressing it in another way. And these drugs are wholly inappropriate. Um, They're not a treatment for that. They only sedate, and again, they have these serious side effects. So they should be used, they, they should be used in an extremely limited, if at all, basis, and immediately other things should take their place uh, to address what's truly going on with the resident. Uh, I just wanted to also mention as part of the problem is that the Food and Drug Administration issued a black box warning, which is its highest warning that could put on a drug, and it states that elderly patients with dementia-related psychosis treated with atypical antipsychotic drugs are at an increased risk of death. Uh, Again, despite these black box warnings, these drugs are still frequently used as a form of chemical (laughs) restraint. Uh, A little bit of background in terms of the rights of residents in this regard. The 1987 nursing reform law, which if you've attended any of our prior programs, we refer to all the time it requires that every nursing home resident is provided the care and quality of life services sufficient for them to attain and maintain their highest practicable physical emotional and psychosocial well-being this includes residents with dementia no excuses if a facility takes in a resident or retains a resident with dementia they are saying that they have the staffing and the ability, the service, etc., to ensure that that person is able to attain their highest practicable well-being—that's what we pay for. That's what providers agree to provide when they become or maintain their licensure uh, to provide skilled nursing care on the Medicare and Medicaid. And this is certainly what every resident deserves. Uh, so, the 1987 Reform Law it prescribes prohibits the use of psychotropic drugs as a chemical restraint. Uh, What happened was that in May 2011, the U.S. uh, Department of Health and and Human Services Inspector General, his name is um, Levinson, he said nursing home residents and their families should be quote-unquote outraged by his office's report that well over a quarter of a million residents were receiving antipsychotic drugs for medically unaccepted off-label uses. In a 2012 review of resident records, his office found that 91% of those records did not contain any evidence that the resident or the resident's families or, or their legal representative participated in the care planning process. Every resident that was reviewed for that study was administered an antipsychotic drug. Here's just an example of a fact sheet and um, we have a number of them on our website. As, uh, and as you can see here, here's a link to our Dementia Care Advocacy Toolkit with these and other fact sheets. Um, all residents have the right to be free from chemical restraints. All residents have and have the right to have, be informed, to have informed decision-making. If the resident is cognitively unable to make decisions and or if the resident has asked someone else or indicated someone else is their decision-maker, That person then has the right to be fully informed in a way that they understand about what the risks and the benefits are of any medication. And importantly, they have the right to refuse. Every resident has the right to refuse medication or their their loved one, whoever is speaking for them, representing them has the right to refuse as well. Here's a quick timeline. Um, Tony's gonna get into this more, but I thought it was useful to include uh, in our slides as well of uh, where we started out in 1987 with the reform law through 2012, which we highlight here with the federal campaign, and then leading up to you know, the ups and downs of the um, what has happened over the past 10 years since the launch of the national partnership. This is a bit from the press release for the launch of that partnership. Again, it references that Inspector General Report that really got things going. Uh, the, just a couple of notes here. The uh, national goal, the initial goal for reducing antipsychotic drug use in nursing homes was 15% by the end of the year. So the the campaign was announced in May. They set a goal of a 15% reduction by the end of the year. In fact, that goal was not met for an entire uh, year and three quarters until the end of the following year. So we saw from the start very limited success in terms of reducing antipsychotic drugging with the partnership. Tony will talk about that a little bit more as well. Uh, as we know here, this is looking from data that CMS itself reports. These are, as I mentioned before, the risk-adjusted data. So these exclude anyone who received the drug but had a diagnosis for schizophrenia or Huntington's disease or Tourette syndrome. That's important information, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next couple of slides before I turn over to Tony. I know it sounds, kind of like we're in the weeds, uh, you know, what what is what is risk-adjusted, what is not risk-adjusted, but it gets to be important, as I'll talk about in a moment. But what we saw at the very beginning is from the end of 2011, which is the benchmark, the red column here, to the first quarter of 2017, antipsychotic drugging, risk-adjusted, dropped 34%. That sounds like a lot, and that's a lot what CMS and the industry touted. However, that's only 6.5% reduction per year. It's really not that much when you consider that these drugs have to be actively given to someone. It's not like someone developed, say pressure ulcers or someone developed or someone fell, things that are certainly within the, the facility's responsibility to prevent, uh, but it's different from this is something that's actively given. And what I can never understand personally is just stop giving these, giving these drugs to new residents when they come in. Stop, stop doing it. Um, but it persisted. It persisted at very high rates. So still we have close to 16% at that time of residents risk-adjusted getting antipsychotic drugs, and the non-risk-adjusted rate was still 1 in 5, 20% of residents getting those drugs. Again, less than 2% of the population will ever have a condition that CMS recognizes um, as potentially appropriate when it risk adjusts. I'm gonna go through a couple of these data sheets really quickly, because I wanna hand it over to Tony. But here we have, this is data, and we're gonna be coming out with a report and we're finalizing it now, um, a campaign sedating that we look at. It's supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to stop the inappropriate sedation of residents, but actually in many ways, the campaign to do that itself was sedated, especially, you know, within a couple of years after after it got started. So here we have, in second quarter of 2021, the latest data that we have. AP drugs were, again, antipsychotic drugs were administered to 21% of nursing home residents. That's roughly 10 times the rate of the population that will ever have a diagnosis as, as being seen by CMS as potentially appropriate for antipsychotic drug use. Um, the drug use increase, as you can see towards the end here, um, uh, during the pandemic. Uh, The rules against using antipsychotic drugs, the prohibitions never stopped, but during the pandemic we we saw an increase. And importantly, non-risk adjusted rates increased significantly. Just looking at my watch really quickly. So this I thought was really interesting. We're gonna talk more about this in our forthcoming report, but you can see that the percentage of residents who are receiving these drugs Um, and have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, Huntington's disease, or Tourette's syndrome. It's mostly schizophrenia, by the way, that that increased substantially. So in um, 2012, the second quarter we have here, it was around 10% of residents receiving these drugs had a uh, a diagnosis. When we get up to 2021, um, it's over 30%, one-third of residents almost have a um, uh, have, have one of these diagnoses. Again, this is indicating that those diagnoses are being used inappropriately. Uh, as this notes here, and this, this um, chart on the right-hand side is from a New York Times article. The New York Times did a major investigation that was released in, I think it was October of last year. There was two different pieces, two different articles that came out in the New York Times. One of them that looked specifically at the uh, diagnosis or phony diagnoses uh, with schizophrenia and the second that looked at the use of, um, of these diagnoses inappropriately people of color. And as we know here, the rise in schizophrenia diagnoses driving, is driving, excuse me, discrepancy in both risk-adjusted and non-risk-adjusted um, data. Uh, and I'm gonna leave with a couple of quotes from that article. This is the residents left behind from the New York Times, at least 21% of nursing home residents on antipsychotic drugs, the Times investigation found, uh, and they relied on data that, that we had provided to them, as well as data from CMS. Um, one of these residents, Dave Blankley, 63, nursing home resident, living with severe deme- dementia, a di- doctor diagnosed Mr. Blankley Blinkney, excuse me, with no evidence of schizophrenia. And you can see the telephone order. This is original copy from the New York Times on the right-hand side. Um, The doctor's telephone order said, adding Mr. Blinkney's schizophrenia diagnosis, add diagnosis of schizophrenia for use of Haldol, which is the antipsychotic drug. Eight months following his admission with a long list of ailments, and after round-the-clock sedation, devastating weight loss, Pneumonia and severe bed sores that required one of his feet to be amputated, Mr. Blakeney was dead. Uh, it's a great article on the New York Times uh, website. Uh, and then just a couple of points from the Human Rights Watch. They did a um, tremendous study uh, four years ago now called They Want Docile uh, and it looked at this across the country. Uh, they spoke to us, they spoke to Tony uh, at Canner. Ch- at, at, uh, Uh, They spoke to folks at Consumer Voice and at the Center for Medicare Advocacy as well. But talks about here, too many times I've given too many pills. I can't even talk, I have a thick tongue when they do it. I ask them not to give me the antipsychotic drugs. When I say that, they threaten to remove me from the nursing home. They get me so I can't think. I don't want anything to make me change the person that I am. Again, that's from the Human Rights Watch reports. I'm gonna skip ahead and move on because I'm running late and move on to uh, Tony's presentation. This is a um, a little bit of snippet from our report that we issued in November that actually found that uh, even though there are strong rules to protect residents from unnecessary psychotropic drugging, those rules are virtually unenforced. And this was our study of two years of, t- three years of data, excuse me, from 2018 to 2020. And lastly, we'll talk about this a little bit more. I think Tony will as well. The, um, the White House has issued a, a, a whole list of nursing home reforms, and they include two important issues in regard to this issue. One is addressing antipsychotic drugging, and the other is addressing uh, low staffing. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Tony. Thanks very much.
1: Hello, everybody. Hi. Uh, So can you see that? Yes. All right, great. Uh, Let me start the show. So I want to say a little bit about myself, my background, because it it has a lot to do with how passionate I am about this topic. Um, So I was born and raised in a small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and it was a very non-diverse community. And um, when I got to high school, I really got into punk rock music and skateboarding, and really sort of rebelled against all the conformity that I saw around me. I know like all kids go through these things, but it it was really foundational for me, and I sort of took this long and i to this day, I sort of carry this idea that um conformity is suspect and Um, I want to read to you real quick from, this is a book that I've been uh, reading lately called How to Change Your Mind. It's by Michael Pollan. It's about psychedelic drugs. But um, there was just a quote that I read today that I thought was, was interesting. It says, society will indulge any effort to help the wayward individual conform to its norms. I'll read it again. Society will indulge any effort to help the wayward individual conform to its norms. Conformity is real big. And I don't think you're going to find a bigger place for conformity where conformity is treasured than in an institutional setting like a nursing home, like unfortunately nursing homes often are. Not every nursing home is an institutional setting, but there's all sorts of nursing homes where they are very institutional and um, conformity is prized. And I I work with a lot of great dementia care experts who talk about this need for facilities to uh, have residents conform to the environment around them rather than having the environment conform to the resident's needs. Because in an institutional setting where you're doing high volume business, you need people to sort of follow your rules and your way of doing things. And you don't wanna alter that because it can cost you some time and money. So the second thing I wanna mention from my background is my first job out of law school was representing people with mental health problems in the civil commitment system. So I worked a lot in state hospitals, and private mental health facilities where residents or patients were being held against their will and being given treatment against their will, which was almost always psych drugs. And we also did, uh, we represented clients in forcible administration and medication hearings. So it was hearings about whether you had to stay in the facility against your will. And there were oftentimes subsequent hearings about whether the facility could hold you down and forcibly give you medications that you didn't want. And these were all psych drugs. So I come from that background What got me into nursing homes was I started doing senior legal services and I saw the disparity in terms of due process in mental health facilities versus nursing homes. I saw all sorts of um, lists of resident rights in nursing homes, but I saw nowhere near the kind of um, loyalty and enforcement to those rules and rights as I saw in the mental health context, which is a little bit scary. So that's what drew me into nursing homes. And um, I think all of that's sort of important to to give you an idea of why I'm so, such a strong proponent of of non-drugging related dementia care. Um, These are pictures of my kids. I have twin boys, that's Cal and Reggie. You can't see them in the middle picture. So I gave you different, um, they're identical twins. I gave you pictures of each one of them. And then that's Zadie, their sister in the middle. Um, I like to show pictures of my kids because they are way cuter than I am. All right. So um, what, I, what you're going to hear from me is a lot of the same as what you heard from Richard, um, but I will try to focus on a couple of other points within these big principles. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the campaign, um, and I'm going to talk more about the principles of good dementia care. My goal, for, and I, I figure there's probably a lot of folks in this webinar who are on our side. They think that there's an overuse of psych drugs and anti, particularly antipsychotics in nursing homes and want to do something about it, I think the the strongest bit of information I can give to you is sort of the very simple recipe for good dementia care that could inform your conversations with providers or with residents and their family members or with prescribers. What I'm not talking about, which I, what I wish I could talk about if I had enough time, but I'm not going to today is Uh, why psych drugs are often the wrong approach for treating dementia. Richard did get into a little bit of that with the black box warning and some of the problems. I'm also not going to talk much about public policy, even though that's sort of my area of expertise. And um, I have a lot of ideas, but we just don't have the time. So Richard talked about a timeline. I don't think he mentioned that the OIG report in 2011, I think, was inspired by a 2006 Wall Street Journal article by Lucette Lagnado, uh, uh who wrote about the misuse of psych drugs in nursing homes. It prompted some congressional uh, interest. There's always uh, there's hearings from the 1970s about overuse of psych drugs in nursing homes, which is scary to think we're now 50 years out from that and still have the same problems. But 2006. There's some new interest in it, and it ultimately results in the 2011 OIG report. Another interesting, in 2010, I just want to say like Canada was sort of well positioned to be part of this burgeoning national campaign because we had done some legislation in 2009 to address misuse of psych drugs. It was a written informed consent bill that ultimately did not pass. It was vetoed by our governor Arnold Schwarzenegger at the time. good news is we have a bill just like it and maybe even better than that bill in 2022 and it looks like it's it's you know knock on wood it's doing well um, but we we started this campaign in 2010 just in California to get uh, to try to reduce antipsychotic reliance uh, and psychotropic drug reliance in nursing homes and then this whole you know sort of the proverbial shit hits the fan in 2011 and we're there with you know, we're ready to go um, I also want to mention that the CMS, the director of CMS at the time, Donald Berwick, he also had um, a personal misuse of psych drugs in a nursing home story that I think was um, was excellent uh, experience for for him to be at the head of CMS during this time. And then I also want to mention that ACA sort of co-opted the the momentum very very wisely. As soon as the OIG report came out, I think it was maybe even a little bit before then, they were writing that, hey, we can we've got an idea, we can do a voluntary effort to reduce use, and we promise we can get use down by 15% ourselves. And that's ultimately what CMS adopted as its goal. So um they were whispering in CMS's ear at the very beginning, and I think had a lot of influence on on how the campaign uh was framed. Then we get to obviously the 2012. Partnership, I think it's important to know that it was more education and collaborative focused, uh, where enforcement was really secondary. We were, it wasn't going to be a zero tolerance approach to drugging. In fact, the name of the partnership, the the partnership to reduce the misuse of antipsychotics, I, I had a problem with that from the get go. Why are we campaigning to reduce the misuse? Why don't we end the misuse? So I thought that was telling right from the beginning that we're going to tolerate some misuse. So here's my overall feeling about the the partnership, the campaign. I don't think it was a failure. Um, I think that it was, I think it underperformed in a lot of ways and significant ways, and it's a a significantly missed opportunity. But there was some improvement. Drug rates did come down. And when we're talking 1.2 million nursing home residents or so and 3 million per year, one, two, three percentage points difference, that that's a big number. That's tens of thousands of residents who were not given antipsychotic drugs and presumably were giving something better than that, uh, that was more responsive to their actual needs. I know a lot of facilities, a lot of providers, a lot of prescribers put a lot of work into this and learned about better dementia care and performed better dementia care. So there was value to the campaign, but did we get all that we could have given all the resources that were put into it? Absolutely not. Um, Richard talked about the data. He has cooler graphs than I do. This is just, you can see the, the number of uh, um, residents on the drugs, it, it did go down. This is a, I mean, we're, we're cutting it off at 10%. So if I go down to 0%, it looks like a less significant reduction, but there's a reduction. The problem is you can see around 2015 or so, it's starting to lose steam and flattening. And then, and then of course you get the uptick during the pandemic, which is very troubling. Um, this all comes from facilities. The, the, the growing gap between the, the lines is, is facilities learning better how to hide antipsychotic drug use. They're not actually reducing the use, the reliance on antipsychotics. What they're learning to do is to diagnose people with schizophrenia. I knew this was gonna be a problem at the very beginning. In 2012, or maybe it was early 2013, an ombudsman in Southern California sent me a list of residents. A facility produced a list of residents on antipsychotics. So they're reviewing all the the residents in their building on antipsychotics, good. And it had the name of the resident, um, their diagnosis and what drugs they were being given. And literally on this document, someone had scratched out diagnoses of dementia and written in schizophrenia or psychosis. So diagnoses that would, you quote, justify the use of the drug. Um, I sent that over to CMS. I said, this is gonna be a big problem, but um, uh, we were just lucky enough to hold off the bipolar, excluding residents with bipolar disorder. And I have a resident right now that I am helping in a Sacramento area nursing home, who has a traumatic brain injury, but she's, she's an awesome resident. She's very articulate. She's very observant. And she was given a schizophrenia diagnosis pretty early on in her nursing home stay and an antipsychotic drug. Um, and then eventually she was able to get off of it, but it was just, it was obvious that it was the facility had learned how to hide its antipsychotic drug use. All right. So I want to talk now about what what I call the least drugging approach. This is what I've learned from all the great experts out there, and there's there's really a number of them, and they do a lot of great training. And there's whole, you know, you can get hours and hours of good dementia care training. But these, this is just it, very simplified. So dementia changes thought processes. When you think about the the, the true symptoms of dementia, is memory loss uh, and uh, difficulty communicating, and and difficulty processing thoughts but it doesn't at all affect the way people feel. So all of your emotions are intact. You're still quite capable of being bored. You're still quite capable of feeling unfulfilled. You're still quite capable of feeling pain, uh, sadness, joy. Uh, So all these things that, all these emotions can be cultivated and and, um, addressed, but oftentimes they're not. Uh, Behavior, as Richard said, is communication and what is it communicating more often than not, it's going to be unmet need. Uh, So let me explain the last bullet point. BPSD is behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. This is a term that is used a lot by clinicians and providers when they're describing what residents with dementia or how residents with dementia present themselves as having behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. I hate that term. I've hated that term since I first heard it. I don't think that behaviors are a symptom of dementia. Behaviors are a symptom of being a human being. Problematic behaviors are a symptom of being a, a human being with needs, with unmet needs. That's not specific to having dementia. It's a, it's a human, human issue. OTD, out the door. BPSD should be out the door. We should eliminate this idea that behavioral problems are endemic, intrinsic, symptomatic of dementia. What we should do is to start to think about this more in the framework of how we deal with children. As a lot of the good experts will tell you, we all have the capacity, except for the psychopaths out there, we all have the capacity to provide awesome dementia care. How? Well, we all think about how we take care of babies. So babies often have trouble communicating, maybe some uh, difficulty handling complex thoughts. So how do they communicate? They communicate with actions, with uh, crying sometimes, but then also times expressions of, of displeasure. So we need to start thinking about Taking care of people, older adults with dementia, the way we take care of babies. We don't treat older adults with dementia as babies. Now, I want to make sure that that's clear. But we, the way we provide, the way we um, examine and investigate the unmet need, is the way we should handle it. Is the same as we should do for babies. So, how do we make? What when you see a baby crying? What's your first thought? Your first thought is not, "Oh, they have a symptom of a disease. I need to give them a drug." It is there's something wrong with this baby, with the perception of the world around them. Maybe they have a dirty diaper. Maybe they're hungry, maybe they're thirsty. Maybe they just need to be picked up and loved and reassured. Maybe they need to be engaged in activity. All of these things, as I say, it's not rocket science. This is all sort of a simple approach. And I'm hoping that some of you will start thinking about dementia care in these terms. It does require thought though. You have to sit down and evaluate oftentimes um, because just getting someone something to eat or uh, a pain medication might not be the resolution that we're looking for. Sometimes you have to dig a little deeper. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Evans is a a great dementia care expert out of the state of Virginia. He tells a story a lot that I've co-opted myself uh, of a resident who kept pulling the fire alarm in her facility. And the fire department would come out and eventually the fire department said, hey, look, we can't keep sending our trucks here. If we do have to do this in the future, we're going to start billing you like a couple thousand dollars for every visit we we make out here. And the facility was sort of at its wits end. They didn't know what to do. They really liked the resident, but they thought that they were going to have to discharge her to another facility because they couldn't block access to the to the fire alarm. But then one of the staff people thought, well, you know, the fire alarm does say pull on it. So maybe the resident's just doing what the what the device says to do. So the solution was to come up with a sign below the fire alarm that said "Not you, Alice" or whatever the resident's name was. So Alice would see the pull, and then she would see the sign that says "Not you." You know, you don't pull this, Alice, and she would continue on and not pull the fire alarm. So sometimes it requires a little bit of deliberation and thought. Um, and that's you know, you you talk to nursing home staff. That's the one thing that might be um, the most lacking in a, in a facility setting is is time to sort of sit down and think when it's just so easy to call a prescriber. And when you call a prescriber, you're, you're basically guaranteeing what the response is going to be because the prescriber can really only give you one thing that you can't have yourself. And that's, that's the prescription. So they're going to do what they think you need. They're going to give you what they think you need. And why the reason why you're getting in touch with them is, is the prescription. So that's all I've got. Um, Thankfully, that was pretty quick. And Richard, I don't know if you wanna cover anything else and or we could just start going to questions. Oh, I also wanna mention one other thing. Sorry, I got a note here that I didn't cover. Um, the data, I wanna mention that CMS does track the use of three other classifications of psychotropic drugs, anxiolytics or anti-anxiety drugs, hypnotics, which are s- sleeping drugs and uh, often used to sedate people, obviously, and antidepressants. And I wanted to let you know that since 2012, the numbers are all, uh, for anxiolytics and hypnotics, are are down. And I think that that's been some carryover effect from the efforts to, to provide better dementia care throughout the nursing home world. Anxiolytics were at 21.5% in 2012. So that's that's right up there with antipsychotics. Almost 22% of residents were getting an anti-anxiety drug. That's down now to 17.5%. So, you know, down four percentage points, which it's it's not huge, but it's better... Some people might've thought it would have gone up as, as prescribers go to other kinds of drugs when they're asked to stop using antipsychotics and the hypnotics are down from 7% to 2%. So that's, that's a significant drop. Antidepressants, unfortunately have stayed about the same. It's 53% in 2012 to 53.5% in 2013. I really am concerned about the overuse of antidepressants in nursing homes. Uh, Antidepressants aren't happy pills. They don't, necessarily make people happy. And I think the problem is we often see residents sad in nursing homes as being unhealthy. Um, But when you're in a sad environment, I think it's absolutely 100% healthy to be sad. Um, And you should be given the tools that make the environment less sad instead of a drug that changes the way your brain works. So I, I have a lot of concern about antidepressants. I also want to mention that I think that the number of residents on anticonvulsants like Depakote, which are often used to to sedate people, are not tracked by CMS. But my guess is that the use of those anticonvulsants has risen uh, since 2012. But I don't have much data to back that up. Tony,
0: thanks very much. That That was great. Appreciate it. Um <clears throat> I think I just wanted to um before we we open it up for Q&A oops there we go oh now I'm on your sorry I'm on your slides ah, bah, bah, there we go uh that's you I had Tony's slides as well so pardon me for that oh, that
1: that crying kid by the way was my that's Cal my my son when he was forced into a halloween costume on a very hot, <laughs> on a very hot october <laughs> california day <laughs>
0: You're in San Francisco. How hot could it be in San Francisco? <laughs> uh,
1: well, I'm in Berkeley and, and October is one of our hotter months. Yes. Yeah. And just yeah. a, for full exp- over-explanation, he was born in the year of the dragon. So he's got a dragon costume on.
0: Oh, cool. Uh, well, it's a very cute, very cute costume. Thanks. Uh, uh, a couple of things I just wanted to, and we'll go to Q&A. Um, I think we only have one question. So if you do have a question for Tony or me, please put it in the Q&A. Um, But before we do that, I think a couple of things I just wanted to um, mention off of Tony's um, excellent as always program uh, was that we um, uh, we have invited Jonathan Evans to speak. So we're setting up a time for him. So he's going to be speaking on a program later on this year. I think we're going to take a uh, break in August. Um, We have a program coming up in July, as you can see here on the screen. But Jonathan Evans is just a um, he's a medical director and a in fact, fantastic speaker and someone who's really practiced on these issues and knows what it takes. I think it's important also just to reiterate what Tony said. It's not rocket science. And there's so much uh, good material out there. A lot of it, as I alluded to before, um, especially when talking about the uh, the White House proposals, a lot of this comes down to staffing having enough staff and having staff that have the appropriate uh, education and skills to um, uh, to help residents and to understand residents and to work with them. But it says that doesn't require uh, anything particularly special other than um, maybe to again, uh, kind of pivot off of what Tony said, not being a psychopath. I mean, I think for most people who are, um, You know, sensitive. Most people certainly who go into the nursing home world to provide care, they want to provide good care. And too often, uh, in my experience, nursing home staff are prohibited from doing so because there's so few staffing, and every day, every moment is an emergency. But quite often, when we um, when we talk about these issues, it's just taking a, a moment or two to understand what is going on with the resident to. Redirect to learn a little bit about the resident and why he or she may be having these so-called um, behaviors. I don't like that expression either. Behavioral and psycho- psychological symptoms of dementia, BPSD. Um, I, I, I agree. That's why I always try to phrase it as in, in, in quotation marks. You know, so-called because it's a um, it's communication. It's the, the individual communicating in the best or maybe the only way. or she is able to do and it's incumbent upon the nursing home to be uh to be understanding and addressing uh understanding identifying and addressing what is going on with that resident uh and then the last thing i wanted to say is also i was thinking about it uh while tony was talking and about how tony was talking about other drugs that are also being used or being used as a substitute for antipsychotics um, because there's been less attention paid to them, but they also could be um, deleterious if not dangerous to residents. The other thing that I wanted to that it made me think of is the use of physical restraints and the nursing home reform law. As I started off in this presentation, um, you know, requires that there are appropriate staff and services to ensure that each resident is able to attain and maintain is or her highest practicable well-being, uh, and for many years, and I remember visiting my great grandmother in nursing home many many years ago. Now, uh, she was physically restrained. She was she was essentially tied into her wheelchair. Uh, and when the there was a campaign to stop physical restraints, that happened very effectively, and very few people now are on uh, or are are physically restrained in nursing home. But what we saw, unfortunately, is that residents became chemically restrained that's been a much more difficult issue to address so before we open up to A, I see we have a few more uh, questions that came in our next presentation is tuesday july 19th at 1 p.m and it's called show me the numbers how transparency can improve quality of nursing home care and we have as our speaker arlene henshaw uh, who's done a lot of work um, on nursing homes on long-term care policy uh, Etc. Excited to be uh, hearing from from Eileen. Uh, please head to nursingon411.org our website for materials from today's webinar, for antipsychotic drugging data, um, and to register for that next webinar. Oops! Sorry about that. Oh my goodness! I just lost my. Um, oh, I, I sorry. Clicked on the wrong thing. Uh, for updates and invites to future programs, please visit nursingon411.org join. Uh, if you're an LTC ombudsman and your program gives you credit for attending this uh, at our webinars, please look out for an email confirming your attendance um, of this program on Thursday. And now I'm going to stop sharing and open this up for Q&A. Uh, so our first question is from Nina Lowenstein, and it is. Do you have any comments on the monthly pharmacist reviews that are supposed to be done of resident drug regimens? Why aren't these effective checks on nursing home uh, medication practices, Tony?
1: That's a great question. It's a. It, it is one of the procedures that is meant to filter out and vet drug use for you know inappropriate causes. Um. There. I don't have any evidence that it's not, that it's totally ineffective. I I think that there probably certainly are cases where a good pharmacist is making recommendations that are accepted, you know, recommendations to stop or reduce use of psych drugs for residents. And those recommendations are being accepted and, 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 you know, the rate might be higher without this process. So um, I don't want to discount the process. I will mention that I do have a, a pharmacy, a pharmacist, who does pharmacy consultant work in nursing homes, who is 100% dedicated to reducing uh, misuse of psych drugs as much as possible. And he has a very difficult time. It's just uh, physicians aren't really interested a lot of times in accepting the recommendations. And to be honest with you, the, the pharmacy consultant world is dominated by a few, by a handful of providers. And there are relationships there between the drug makers and the pharmacies and the physicians. And um, sometimes it is in the interests of the consultants to sort of go along, to get along and to not be too uh, vehement in their advocacy for less drugging. Um, But he, you know, I do hear good stories from positive stories from him from time to time about making big changes, working with new management and new facilities or in different facilities about reducing use and having having an impact, um, but it, it certainly, it, it's certainly, it's a program that could be improved for sure. Thanks,
0: and I think one thing is also is that it's a pretty recent requirement and then we had the pandemic. So I think that um, assessing it, um, you know, assessing what's going on to the extent that it, that it may or may not be effective and tweaking it, so tweaking policies around it, um, we still haven't had a chance to to do that. Uh, next question is from Dennis Short. I've spoken to nursing workers who complain about the drop in antipsychotics because it has made residents more difficult to manage in the context of short staffing. Any thoughts on how to respond to this challenge?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question because it brings into this all of the concern about facility culture. Um, it it really is the idea is we're going to take care. We're going to care about residents rather than just take care of residents. We're going to, and this is predicated on having some time, some time to engage with the resident and talk to them while you're providing care, as opposed to just doing care on them uh, without their input, without their participation, so that they sort of feel like a, a, you know, a piece of meat or something. Uh, And I understand that at the at the lower level of the staff, it's the CNA level of the staff, um, you're, they're going to feel like they don't have enough time. And that what we always say is that you can't just stop using psych drugs on residents because there were unmet needs that probably led to the prescription. You're going to have to fill in something else. You can't just take them off the drugs and then go back to what you were doing before because you're going to have all the same problems as you had before. This is really a facility cultural issue, a leadership issue, where they're going to have to ingrain among all the staff. This is how we take care of residents. We're thinking about residents holistically. We're thinking about everything we can possibly do to make their stay a good one and to make them feel really, really welcome and good. And that takes some time. But what we hear a lot from providers who have done this is that in the long run, it saves money. It saves time because you're there's a lot less opposition from the residents. The residents are become, they wake up and they're able to participate more in their own activities and to perform um, you know, more of their fun to, to do, they get their functional, um, their functionality back. And so now they're able to provide more of the care themselves, they, they need less assistance. They're more engaged and, and it's just a happier place to work. So I think the, there might be a, a bit of a learning curve where things, you might need some more investment in a particular facility. To make sure that they're able to, to provide good care. But in the long run, we think that it saves time and money.
0: Yeah, and I think there's been some some studies that shown show that as well. But it's it's kind of a um reflection of the problem itself that it seems appropriate if someone's upset, so you want to calm them down, but actually this doesn't really calm them down. It just As you said one time, and I've stolen this quote from you, is that it's essentially like putting a pillow on them. So you've taken away their ability to communicate, but you've not changed anything, and that just makes it more of a struggle. And I think, you know, in turn for the, as you were just saying, for the nursing home, the nursing home operations, it seems like a good idea to to for this, but actually. It makes you know those those residents require more care in many ways. They're probably less able to go to the bathroom by, by themselves. Certainly decreases resident and customer therefore satisfaction. There's a um, there, there's a lot of different things that go into it, but it seems like the easiest thing to do, and it's become um, you know as as we've you know, been saying kind of an epidemic, um, and a persistent one at that. Uh, next question is from Cheryl Friedman. How does one deal with a private physician who prescribes antipsychotics for dementia for a patient in home care without trying out the means first? I just want to say I'll hand this to Tony, but I think that the, what we focus on today is nursing homes and the rules only apply to nursing homes. But I think it's really important to understand that good dementia care is good dementia care. And, you know, Good dementia care in a nursing home, excuse me, is good dementia care in assisted living, adult care facility, group home. Or a you know, person, person's own um, home or resident, residence. But get it, Tony.
1: Well, I would say in this situation, like in even in the nursing home setting, I think the prescriber should be challenged with: Who are you making this prescription for? Is it for your patient or for the people who take care of the patient? Is it to make the patient's life better, as they perceive better, or is it to make the caregiver's life better? And probably that means easier. Um, if the answer is the latter, if it's really about the, the, the caregiver, then I think you got to ask yourself, what are you doing? Um, so it's, I think there's, that has, that challenge has to be posed to the prescriber. Um, I feel bad for prescribers here because they're getting phone calls from people who are probably very feeling very overwhelmed and it's human nature to want to help the person who's in front of you asking for help. In these cases, it's, it's, probably never gonna really be the patient. It's gonna be the caregiver. And so the physician is really, I think, prescribing to alleviate the concerns of the caregiver and they're not doing a deep dive on unmet needs for the patient. So I think my first recommendation here would be a lot of education to this physician. Hey, there's a better way. I think um, you know the, the patient will, will be more engaged with the caregiver and hopefully have, and I think a lot of times it's gonna be the family members they're going to have a more enriched relationship without being drugged. If they're if they're drugged, it's just it's there's not going to be much um, relationship there. So education, and then I also think that you know there could be things done, referrals to medical board about mis uh, a licensing board about misuse. Uh, a lot everybody seems everybody has a boss. You could go up the chain to this this physician's boss if there's a if they're part of a partnership practice. If they're part of a HMO, they could go to the director, hey, we have concerns about this particular physician misusing this drug and taking advantage of the ignorance of, of patients and the and the caregivers. Sorry,
0: Kind of relates to the next question from uh, Kelly Jonker. Does anyone monitor which doctors are prescribing these drugs in nursing homes? Nursing homes pick and choose their medical directors.
1: There is a website. Um, where you can see the prescriptions by doctor and see what drugs they prescribe that are paid for by Medicare. Um, I think it's called dollars for docs. Oh wait, dollars for docs is the physicians that have received money from drug companies to endorse certain drugs. Richard, do you remember the website where you can look up the.
0: No, it does. It does sound familiar. It's funny because I was thinking dollars for doctors too, but it's not, that's not the. um...
1: Yeah, it, I think it's ProPublica. ProPublica does Dollar for Docs, and I think they do the other website, which is where you can look up a physician's prescriptions by classification and maybe even by the drug that are paid for by Medicare. Now, that's not the whole universe of their prescriptions, but it would give you an indication. I I just I wish I could remember the website. Yeah. Maybe someone, Haley or Eric, could look it up real quick <laughs> and put it in the chat. Um,
0: and, and, and the website is propublica.org. Uh, they also have a very good um, um, uh, feature called Nursing Home Inspect. They have a, a lot of good good work on their uh, on their page. Uh, anonymous attendee says: Is this a problem that any states are working on trying to fix through state laws? And are there any good state laws as example or model language? And Antonio, I'll give it to you because you've actually, as you said before, and uh, in 2009, I think Canner uh, had a um, uh, a bill on this.
1: Yeah, there's definitely been some action at the state level here. Um, uh, some of the fo- the focus that I'm most familiar with is a written informed consent law, which requires the residents and their representatives to get information about risks, benefits, and alternatives. And hopefully there's a conversation attached to that with the prescriber where they're able to ask questions and things. Um, almost every state has an informed consent law. The Unfortunately, in, in the federal regulations, there is no There's no reference to the term informed consent. There's a lot of references to residents being told about what's being done and given information, but the the phrase informed consent never appears. So that's been, that concern has been um, addressed by most states. And now Massachusetts and Wisconsin have written informed consent requirements. And hopefully by late September of 2022, California will join them. Um, And then there's some other. Other states have done other things. Almost every state was given some ownership of a, of a statewide partnership that was modeled on the, national, uh, mo- the, on the national campaign. Some of those states, I think, had some success. California's is still meeting, and they're still doing work. Wow. And, and I think it's been pretty decent work, considering the fact that we have zero resources. Um, so there's been some movement at the state, although I'm, I don't think any one state has really sort of owned this issue and done a great job.
0: Here, here in New York, we almost got an informed consent bill passed a couple of weeks ago, and, um, and and weren't able to get it through, unfortunately. Uh, but and it, was a, it was a pretty good bill, I, I think. We spent a lot of time working on that with a host of different advocates. Uh, I think we have time for just one more question. This is from George McNally. When involved in a SNF uh, nursing home eviction case, would it benefit the attorney to go to the facility in person to review residents entire file looking for the alterations of the resident's file?
1: Well, I'll mention that uh, trouble with facilities uh, providing good care to residents with dementia sometimes does lead to eviction concerns. And in fact, Consumer Voice is working on a project that a training project that will be launched here in California, hopefully soon. That sort of marries the idea of reducing inappropriate or ineffective discharges from nursing homes with better dementia care. So definitely in the eviction context, this this comes up quite a bit. We want to get facilities will want to get rid of if they can't drug them, they'll want to get rid of them by discharging them. And we we do a lot of eviction hearings at the state level here. And we always talk about, you know, this is where's this resident gonna go? Oh, they're gonna to go to a different nursing home. Well how do they provide the kind of care that this resident needs and you don't even though you have the same license. Um, so yeah, you definitely wanna go through the entire file, find evidence of what you're probably looking for is is that they haven't really deliberately sat down and considered this resident's unmet needs. There may have been some drug trials and things like that that didn't work as, as could be predicted and that there's a different path. So you use these, they usually don't have a justification for discharge so you can deal with the legal issues up front. And then you can use the hearing or the eviction uh, um, case to sort of educate the facility on better dementia care, which I've done in a number of cases.
0: Thanks, Tony. Uh, And I think um, that tomorrow, the Consumer Voices webinar is actually on uh, transferred um, discharge issues. If I, if I remember correctly, uh, so it's it's I think uh, theconsumervoice.org the is their website, and uh, and you can check it out. I know I signed up for it, but I, 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 I don't remember precisely the subject. Um, thank you, Claire, for your comment um, and and on your presentation and the experience. Just very quickly, there were last two questions. Were any data on Ciracil? not that I know of specifically, but there may, there may be some Medicare data on that, but I'm, I'm not sure what that re- refers to. I mean, it is obviously an antipsychotic. And then the last question was, what qual- qualifications should the prescriber have? Well, that's really under under the, um, uh, the, the which I guess it's state law um, in terms of being a doctor or another person who could provide a prescriber. But most importantly is that, you know, we're looking at this you know, in the nursing context or any context, that the, the drug is being given. If it's given at all, it's given because it's clinically indicated to benefit the resident. And um, that's you know, what is repeated throughout all of the different uh, provisions that we are, have been talking about today. Uh, Tony, thank you again very much. It's nice to see you always and um, great presentation. Thank you everyone for joining us. Hope to see you next month. Happy first day of summer.
1: Oh yeah, the solstice. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. All Bye-bye now.